brother walked up a while ago and asked us what our subject was. And I said, would you believe the tabernacle? And he said, tabernacle number two. And you know why I said that, because uh, we did not get through our subject last year. And uh, brother Ralph made a comment just a moment ago, the similarity, or at least the continuity of these classes. It looks like we're all dealing with this uh, subject in one person or another. And uh, Brother Ralph Curran announced his class of subject. It's looking through uh, the reality through Moses, towards Moses. And uh, it occurred to us it might help us to uh, relate, Brother Ralph, to your very excellent presentation of this thing, that uh, we could uh, paraphrase and say our class might be looking through Moses to the reality. No one's get offended by that, will we? Because no. literally that's what we're doing. Uh, our attempt in this class will approach this this subject, as it was seen through the eyes of Israel, and as it was seen through the eyes of Moses and Aaron and the priests, as they attempted to carry out the plan and purpose that deity had with this nation, and the purpose he had with the nation, as they were to reflect the light of God's laws among the contemporary nations that uh, witnessed Israel's existence. Uh, for the sake of the young people as well as ourselves, I think we'd do well to at least establish a little bit of the time period that we're dealing with. So just very briefly, we're not going to take up a lot of time, but let's put here this line and uh, we'll put creation here. And here, roughly on the seventh day, we have the fall of man. Now, how far down this period here uh, was it from the creation of man and his fall to the flood? We're going to just get some high points of history. About 1,650 years. So let's put it about here. 1,650 years. And then we have this notable uh, judgment of God upon the human family because from the time of creation of man's fall, uh, at this point of man's history, God in his wisdom saw the necessity to destroy from his earth the human family which he had created, with the exception of eight souls. Then uh, looking from the time of the flood and getting a high point, which is down to the time of the creation of the nation of Israel, uh, where would we put it here? How much further from here down to here? Someone else. Yeah, well, what we're doing is just getting us to thinking together. How long a period of time here? Well, roughly, we've got about uh, 850 years. Now, if my figures are right, some of you might come up and but I think it's about 850 years from the time of the flood till we find that Israel has become a nation. Uh, she has been formed, and now she comes out at the time of the Exodus, which what? What are you marking over? You're marking the Bibles. What did you say about uh, 
and that there was no law of deity until either the giving of the law of Moses or even more importantly they put a lot of emphasis on the teachings of Christ. But uh, in, in a manner of speaking we can say that, uh, that law, uh, God's law was actually waiting for man. When, uh, when Adam opened his eyes in consciousness, Edenic law was waiting for him. So really there has never been a period of time in man's history where man was without God's law or where he was not under restraint or guidance of divine given laws. Now, let's turn to uh, uh, two or three references that are pertinent to our introductory uh, remarks here. Let's go to the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians and the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, and let's take a look at the 28th verse. Uh, it's almost a necessity, class, that, uh, that we have a few preliminary remarks before we ever attempt to go into this marvelous subject of this tabernacle that was pitched in the wilderness in the center of the camp of Israel. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, uh, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church or the believers of God's covenant people, and he says, When all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. Now, if we had read several verses previous to this in the same chapter, we would have seen that Paul, in addressing or writing these Corinthian brethren, had made mention of the fact that Christ was the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming, and then he skips over roughly a thousand years and tells us that something will be accomplished through the reign of Christ and those that are Christ at his coming. And he skips over roughly a thousand years and he takes us immediately to the end of the thousand year and the real reign that uh, Brother Bud spoke of. And what has been accomplished is, is that through the reign of Christ and the immortalized saints, they will have been instrumental in putting down all rules all power and authority, and then only then can God be said to be all and in all. Now, let's look at uh, a very excellent reference in the book of Numbers. Uh, all of us are very familiar with it, but it's very pertinent to what we're going to mention here. Numbers 13, 21. Numbers 14, 21. <clears throat> now, again, brethren, it's uh, we're simply trying to put emphasis on the fact that we should learn as, as Bible students to read carefully what the scriptures say unto us. Uh, I think Brother uh, Roth made mention of the fact that it's a sober thought to think that when we approach into this world, that if we treat it with great reverence and with a desire to be educated and to become better informed as to what God desires in us, we will read it more carefully. Now, in this uh, Numbers 1321, here, here in the record, God puts himself on record, so to speak, and says, as truly as I live, and that's pretty definite, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with my glory. 
There's not any equivocation there. It's not maybe it will be, but it shall be filled with my glory. Now, let's take a look at a very excellent passage in uh, the uh, book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, the 55th chapter, Isaiah 55, and let's go down to the 10th and 11th verse. And, uh, brethren, in our minds, we see continuity in these verses that we're selecting. We hope that you will. Uh, we simply are making an attempt that we might be thinking around together. In this Isaiah 55, look down at the 10th and 11th verse, and again, God is saying, in effect, that I have a purpose for having created the earth and for having created man, and he really hasn't told us how he proposes to fill the earth with his glory, but he has put himself on record that he will fill it with his glory, but he hasn't told us the means nor the method. But he further enlarges upon this through another of his servants, meaning Isaiah here, and God says the, the uh, in other words, it will come to pass, for as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but it watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the evil, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. I think it's worth our time to just read that same uh, passage from the New English uh, uh, Bible here. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return until they have watered the earth, making it to blossom and bear fruit, and give seed for sowing and bread to eat. So shall the word which comes from my mouth prevail. It shall not return to me fruitless without accomplishing my purpose or succeeding in the task that I gave it. Now, brethren, when we attempt to look at the, uh, the encampment of Israel and the tabernacle in the wilderness, what we're suggesting is, is that we've got to look at it through God's eyes. Uh, when we read the writings of Moses here, and he is the author of the first five books of the Bible, Moses is speaking what God tells him to speak. He's not adding his own reasoning. He's not adding his own embellishments in things. Moses actually is speaking according as the Spirit of God moved his mind or his intellect to speak. And so we are told, uh, uh, in essence here, that God is saying, don't look at it from your viewpoint. What I am revealing is looking at it through the eyes of my, myself and what I intend to accomplish in the earth and specifically through this peculiar and unique people called Israel. So therefore what we have revealed in uh, the, uh, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy actually is a, a revelation of the divine objectives of God dealing with Israel and the tabernacle and everything pertaining to it. Uh, let's look at Exodus 19 for a moment. <clears throat> In the 19th chapter of Exodus, and let's pick up the uh, fifth and sixth verse. Uh, now, at this particular junction, our 
we have Israel roughly three months out of Egypt. And they are now in the environs of Mount Sinai where the law was given. And here for the first time, we see a series of ascents of Moses up into the mount to commune with God. And then when he communes with God, he comes down and he reveals this unto the nation of Israel. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I admit it to look this up, but I know there are at least five different times that Moses made this journey or ascent up into the mount and spoke with seven. All right, now, check that still. Somehow or another, I knew that there were five times, but I wanted to believe, I really wanted to believe that there were seven times because, again, anyone who's made just a very study of numbers, and as I've done very little of it, the, the numeral seven means perfection or completeness. And I think you better than a preacher when I said, I wasn't sure I knew there was five times, but I was thinking it was seven, but Chuck, if you can verify that, it, it, it fits in very nicely uh, with what we had hoped would be, that, uh, that the completeness of what God is doing with his nation. But anyway, Moses makes these journeys up into the mouth, and when he comes back, under the people and reveals what God has said to him. And can someone tell me what the response of the people is uh, when, when Moses tells them that this is what God said? All that the Lord has said, we will do. This is their response to it. Now let's see, did we read now, now the fifth and sixth verse? Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Again, brethren, in, a, in uh, our attempt to read carefully, uh, Moses is caused to express uh, God's thinking here. And he says unto Israel, that you almost think that they would have been overwhelmed with the honor that deity was conferring upon them. But he says that I propose you are peculiar people unto me. You, the, your position is unique. I have taken you above all the people in the earth. I have chosen you to become an instrument to further manifest my glory in the earth. What a wonderful privilege. What a wonderful privilege that was given to Israel. Uh, a wonderful commission that was given to this people. Uh, let's take a look at uh, Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter. In Deuteronomy 7, and this is an extension of the same thought. And my uh, brethren, again, uh, what is written in the scriptures as far as instruction and learning? It's not just fill of space. And this is repeated several times, so Richard is told to listen carefully because you are a unique people. God has a plan and a purpose with you above all the people. So listen carefully to what he says. And in Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter and the sixth verse, he repeats it in a little bit different wording. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people. There's an additional special as opposed to peculiar unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now let's get uh, another reference in, uh, let's get Deuteronomy 28.9, and I think that will suffice for the point we want to make here. In Deuteronomy 28.9, 
And the Lord shall establish thee and holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God, and walk in his ways. Now it's interesting here that uh, the writer, being Moses, he tells the people, again, that they are to be a holy, a separate, a peculiar people unto God, but it is conditional. If you keep my laws and my commandments, and walk in my ways, ye shall become what I intended to, to make you become in the eyes of the nations. And I'm not sure where I got this, uh, this thought, but it's in some of our Christian Open writings, and I thought it was very excellent. If we substitute the word holy people, where we have found it in these references, we can paraphrase without doing damage to the word of God and say in effect that the Lord shall make thee a showpiece to the nations, a sure peace to the nations. Well, if we ask ourselves the question, then what is the purpose in which God chose Israel? Took roughly, what, 230 years to form them from, from 70 uh, individuals, uh, Jacob's immediate family, from 70 grew into a large number of people, roughly over a period of 230 years, and at the fullness of time, God brought them out. So we ask the Sahasan the question, what purpose did God have in creating the nation of Israel and looking upon them as peculiar and special unto himself? That we have already suggested. You have to be a light stand, that then we're putting emphasis on that, a light stand or a lampstand. And if the laws and the commandments of deity are working in your minds, in the priesthood and in the nation, then as a man thinketh, as a man thinking in his heart, as he reasons upon God's precepts, this nation will reflect the influence of these divinely given laws. And as a result, they will be the instrument of drawing all of these nations, I forget which one of these brothers mentioned about the and maybe it's Bud, the Hittites and uh, what is the other one in there? Amorites. They're in that, uh, that city of Jerusalem, if we have heard the name of Jerusalem. These people practice the most abominable things. It's unbelievable. Even archaeologists have demonstrated very ably what these people did. These nations were totally given over into idolatry. They had no knowledge of the true and living God. And so God, in his mercy, and I think it's very interesting to get God's viewpoint. In his mercy, he says, in effect, that I have not written off as it were all of mankind, but it is my purpose and my plan to use Israel to bring all peoples to a knowledge of the true and living God and the hope of eternal life. And even in the record of Moses, what does he say? What does he say when, he, when he's dealing with this? Uh, excuse me, I said Moses, I mean Abraham. In being Abraham shall all families and nations of peoples or language of the earth be blessed. So, brethren, again, if we're thinking together, and we hope that we're getting across to you, if we're not, we'll, we'll take the responsibility. But what we're saying is that God, from the very beginning, intends to fill the earth with his door, and since man introduced this condition, it necessitated that God would react to that without taking away man's capacity of free will, 
they necessitated that God take issue with, and uh, uh, the, the word circumvent may be a little bit misleading, but in other words, to correct this condition which man introduced in that very good condition in Eden, this is the program. And we're still in that program of God, uh, in other words, healing the breach, the severance of the God-man relationship which was introduced here in Eden. So when we look at it, brethren, in this context, and particularly these uh, four books of uh, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we need to say in fact that these people really are special. And what a privilege and a blessing it would be to be told that you are the instrument in which I will use in bringing all people to a knowledge of me and the filling the earth of my glory. One other reference there, let's look at Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter. And let's take a look at the 6 through the 8. I think, yeah, that's the right reference. I think it's very interesting, brethren, that here, if you please, and we did some research on this, and we feel we're on fairly safe ground, we feel that this, these references here have a good way of summing up some of these preliminary scriptures that we have tried to introduce here. And true enough that the nations recognize that these people are special unto this living God. They begin to recognize it. And so Moses again revealing the nations looking upon Israel, and as Israel began to apprehend what God had in, in mind for them, look at the sixth verse here. Uh, well, let's look at the fifth. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep, therefore, and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear these statutes, and they shall say, Surely this is a great nation. It is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great? who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. For what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law that I set before you this day? Now, I think, brethren, that God has established to Israel, as well as to any who are interested in consulting the record, that this was Israel's commission. Israel was to be a lampstand, that lampstand that we will deal with later, they were to be a lampstand in the surrounding darkness. And they, through the indwelling of these divinely given laws, and as we said earlier, as a man thinketh, so is the man, if Israel had really kept the law, if they had loved it and kept it and walked in it, their actions, their, their natural life, their family life, their religious life, would have reflected it, and there would be many peoples living contemporary with Israel who would have been drawn to that marvelous light stand, and there would have been multitudes rejoicing in the true and living God of Israel. But there's a fly in the ointment. Did Israel keep the commission that God had given them? The record tells us that they didn't. What a pitiful and pathetic thing is that Israel, after all of these admonitions, 
And all of the detailed instructions given in this letter, that Israel failed to keep the commission that God had entrusted to them. Well, uh, I think it's fair to say is there a lesson for uh, we consider ourselves Israel. We are spiritual Israel. So in that context, as we examine this record, is there is there some kind of lesson, is there some kind of exhortation that we can glean from this study that, that in other words, it'll benefit us in our desire to be what we should be as we attempt to work out our salvation, as Beth mentioned in this uh, New Jerusalem sequence of things. This is the lesson here. Is there a lesson? Is there a word of exhortation to us? Are we exceeding what's intended? Or are we, are we to really glean from this a message to ourselves? Anyone? We've made the same promise as Israel. Now, the Lord has spoken, we will do it and be obedient. Have we made that promise, brother, brother, in a very simple way? Not to you. Have we made some kind of an agreement? What is a covenant? But an agreement between one, two or more parties. Yeah, two or more parties. All that the Lord. What? Yeah, absolutely. When we are baptized, we settle with this. It's not even new, brother. We're we're reviewing. We know we're not presenting anything new to the brethren, but what we're saying is that our baptism, we as Israel, standing there, we sit in effect, all that the Lord has required of us, we will do it. And we, we fully intended to do that if the Lord was a baptism. This was our desire, to fully carry out what God had intended for us. We also Israel to have accomplished the purpose for which God intended. What had to happen? I'm thinking of one word, but... I know what the word is naturally, but I'm wanting you to think, what word am I thinking of? Something had to happen to Israel collectively as a nation. It had to be taught through the priest, and they had to experience this. But the nation of Israel had to, what one word am I thinking of? This had to happen to Israel before they could have accomplished the purpose of God of being this life. Well, let me ask you, what was the condition of Israel when they were in Egypt? Would you say that they were a spiritually minded people? Were they deeply uh, embedded in the, in the truths of God? And, and were they really reflecting this and, and uh, manifesting these things among the, among the Egyptians? No. They were in a pitiful state, weren't they? And obviously, if God intended to deal with them down there, he would have done it down there, but he brought them out. He brought them out. So what one word might I be thinking of? Well, he says freedom. You said what? Belief. Belief. Well, the word I'm really thinking of is regeneration. Israel themselves, if they were to beat this lifestyle, they had to have a regeneration. There had to be a renewing of their covenant before they could attempt to be anything to the surrounding nations. Well, as we said, they failed in that. Now, let's look at Numbers, the second chapter, and take a look now at the encampment itself. You, need, you don't need to bother it, brethren, but we're going to uh, try to read all of these chapters. What we're going to do is take uh, just a few selected verses from Numbers, the second chapter. And again, uh, I think that uh, any of us who have studied this subject and read it, that you can't help but become conscious of how much detail are in these four books. And first thing you know, you get yourself, you, you find yourself reading with a great deal of caution 
and find you're, you're reading it in verses, and then you're down to words in verses, because really they're pregnant full of meaning here, and you can't just overlook them. So here in Numbers, there is a reason why God, incorporated in His Word, tells us how He arranged the camps. So let's take a look just for a moment here. Now this is going to be the difficulty because we're working on the back here. This is one panel that we have here, and I think most of you have seen this because this has been in a number of occasions uh, that I have visited. Now uh, some of you have seen this, so I'm going to put this right here by the uh, blackboard just temporarily. But I do have a, a painting up in the chapter of Israel, and I just want to briefly show it to you. Yeah, here it is. I think I'm going to have. Yeah, Jim, I believe it'd be better there. It's a little bit distracting, trying to. Now, brethren, I want you to take a look at this panel here. Huh? Uh, that's much better, isn't it? Uh, to those of us who uh, were with us last year, now we did not have this panel in our possession last year. We have two more added to our series, but I think it would be interesting to those of you who were not here last year that. A sister in the truth by Sister uh, Irene Medlin from Conway, who's 80 years old, did all of these for me. It's really marvelous when you talk about working in the vineyard. Here is a sister, 80 years old, whose eyesight and, and hands are steady enough that she did this uh, series of marvelous paintings that we have here. But this one I did not have in my possession, and it's a real delight to have it. But here, uh, we, uh, we gave her briefly the outline of what we wanted. And there is some discrepancy in some things, and we'll try to point it out as we go along. But basically, we feel in these panels, we have our subject here. And I'm a great believer in visual evidence. Now, looking at that encampment, again, putting emphasis on the fact that this thing is not given in a general way. There's so much detail. That encampment, why was it done on a circle? Uh, I can't think about it why it's made. But why wasn't that encampment in a circle? A circle, in a lot of ways, is more advantageous than a square. Why wasn't it? Why did they make a circle out of the camp? It's a reasonable question. God, you know, please, without life. Uh, well, they hit the four sides because each side uh, meant something. They had a standard, and uh, they, well, they could have divided the circle, I suppose, too. All right, but they had a saying, in effect, well, if it's on a square like that, and we've already said, let's read carefully, obviously, what you all say, that in the record that's been given us, that there must be somewhere in these four books that tells us that this is the way it must. Do you recognize that? Yeah, we know that that's right. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't, you know, this isn't some of these concepts that, well, we've got to have an encampment, so uh, let's put it on a square. If I were doing it, I think really in some ways I'd see the advantage of having it on a circle, you know, in some way. But there we have it on a square. When you start saying that, it's a Well, it, it was that down the full aspect of the too. That's too bad. All right. Now, that's good. That we'll just, uh, we'll take that just as a, a little bit of a, a clue here and say, in effect, uh, not only... Huh? It's clear that represents the section. This is what I know that they She said a square... And it is a fact that square in Hebrew, or particularly the cube, is even more uh, perfect in this analogy. But the cube in, in the Hebrew language of their understanding is stood for perfection and completeness, just like with number seven. But they were told how to set up this camp 
And uh, I think now we ask ourselves uh, again to figure just a practical question. Uh, let's get some idea of the number of people that we're dealing with. Now, some of you in the class, we you can consider this as review, but I think it's essential to our subject to appreciate this marvelous enchantment and everything that went on there. What, what number of people are we dealing with? In other words, there's one thing to have a Bible see. Look at uh, Martinville, we've got roughly 10 or 11 acres up there, and it's crowded. And if you get 500 people in that campus, you've really got a problem. Really, it can't accommodate comfortably, and you can't keep it clean as you like, with 500 people in that campus of Martinville, and we're dealing with roughly 10 or 11 acres. But I'm asking in, in, a, in a very likely way, what, what might be the numbers of this one? Okay. All right, now she, yeah, all right, now she got some notes. Right, that's really, that's very people that some of the women took notes, but I know that if you remember that figure, 603,551 notes. I think that's the actual figure. But these were males, 20 years old and upwards, and it had nothing to do with women and children. But basically what we're seeing are, when we're taking into consideration family life and the development of families, conservatively speaking, brethren, there had to be, and this is a conservative figure we're going to give you, there had to be conservatively two to two and a half million people. And when you look at that camp in that life, We've got a real problem taking care of those people there. This isn't any small tent city. This is a tremendous encampment, roughly two and a half million people, and I think some of you will remember, and again, it helps us to get it in our mind. It's reason it stays in my mind. In the state of Arkansas, we have a million nine hundred thousand there in the state of Arkansas, and uh, I think it's 52 million square miles. That's I don't know how. That's how I remember. But anyway, We've got two million people in the state of Arkansas. We're dealing with roughly two and a half million people here. So I'm asking you, what's the land area here? Huh? Well, think of the city of Washington, D.C. is environmented by two million people. Good, good analogy, huh? See, it shows you that we think of these comments and brothers. I would like to say it was young, but well. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that there's two million four hundred thousand there, which is a perfect square? <laughs> well, I, but well, I hadn't thought of that. He said, is it possible that there Many times it was referred to as holy ground. 
holy ground. So all of that enchantment, in one sense, God pronounced on his holy ground. And there's a very interesting thing put in the record to emphasize to us what God means when he says that. You remember what I'm talking about? Again, giving you a thing. Very peculiar thing that's interjected into that record. And brethren, again, God intended for Israel as well as our to get the message. Speaking of the holiness of the ground in his dealing with this nation, he said that when the time came for anybody in the camp of Israel to leave themselves, they went outside the camp. And there's a description given, I can't remember what book it is, a description given of a method of keeping this camp clean and taking care of those natural functions of Israel. Now, brethren, that's put in there for a purpose. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it's profitable for a certain thing. That tells us something. Do you suppose Israel complied with that? There's sanitary laws that were to be met in that camp there. Now, is there any questions or any comments? All right, what we have here then, well, I'm not going to read from this numbers, but if you want to put in your notes, uh, numbers, the second chapter is a detailed description of the tribes, their numbers, their princes and leaders, the position that they took in the camp. Mind you, all according to God's directions, not there. Can you imagine, again, brethren, to help us appreciate what's involved here, can you imagine what would have happened if there was a lot of uh, confusion as to about who was going to pitch where? Well, all of that was eliminated. God told them how to pitch it, the standards, and so forth. So there are 12 tribes pitched here according to God's specifications, and you will find this detailedly given in Numbers, the second chapter. Now, so what we have here then, in looking at that camp, looking at the camp of Israel here, we've got the camp. We'll put that up here. Now, right off hand, what we have next, we're told about. In other words, now we're becoming selected. There's a separation going on, even in the camp. Israel has been separated from Egypt. Israel has been separated from the nations. They have been called out, separated ones, set apart. But even in the camp, we find that this principle is carried out in the camp. So we have the camp, and we're told where all of these tribes were in the camp, and how they were stationed and positioned. So we have the camp, and then the next thing we find in Numbers 3, in Numbers 3, we have a description of a even more select people, a special people in the camp, the Levites. So then we have there, and in that third chapter, we have a description of them and their numbers. We have the Levites. Now, brethren, in one way of speaking, there's method in our madness here. There's a principle involved here, just like there is in, in, in his class and in Bob's class. There's principles involved, and when we see them, we can apply them with real assurance as we investigate the Word of God. Now, what comes next? We've got the Levites. And roughly there was... Uh, I'm thinking of the figure 23,000. I can't remember right off hand. Anybody can remember? 22,000. All right, 22,000. All right, 22,000, which is a good enough of itself. Well, brethren, you can't see it in this, but in that enchantment, in that enchantment there, these Levites were chosen out of all of Israel, 
and they were told where to pitch their tent, and they pitched within the perimeter of the tent, and there was a great, I don't know what the distance is, uh, you know, you get into there, I'm not sure what the distance was between all of the camp of Israel and the tent of the Levites, but there was a broad, open space area there, before you, if you came down out of the camp and was walking towards the tent of the Levites, built on that square there, you would have had to traverse a, a large open space all the way around there. There was a great distance between the tent of the, the Levites, the tent of the Levites, and the rest of the camp. All right, now, there they are, Kevin, all right, Charles? I just want to add to the great time, the square within the square. Right, so right, right. right. All right, now, Charles, that's that very nicely in the introduces it to another special people. And we have the, the, the tents of the camp, the tents of the Levites. Then we have the tents of Moses and Aaron and his sons. So let's put this up here. Let's see Aaron. A A R O N, right? And his sons. All right. Again, brethren, a principle is developing here. Now, the tents of Moses and Aaron and his sons. And again, the record tells us where they were to be. And what part of the tent, what side, in speaking of directions, were they? The east side. And every time that Israel, you know, this tent moved several times in that 40 year period of time here. That tent moved. But when they did, they were always told to pitch the tabernacle facing the east. So wherever they pitched, the tabernacle always faced the east. And Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons' tents faced the tabernacle or looking uh, towards the west part of the camp, but they've been looking towards the, uh, the tabernacle there. So we've got the tents of Moses and Aaron. Now what do we have? Is there anything else involved here? Anybody think of anything else? Because we're dealing with the principle. In other words, God says, according to the pardon, according to the law that I've given me. What are we speaking of? Priest. Got a priest, all right. So we've got the priest. Huh? Right. Right. All right, the high priest. Anything else? The Almighty. All right, now he's pursuing me. He said the Almighty. Anything else? All right, what we've got now, we've got the, uh, the actual tabernacle itself. Now, but we've got one other thing before you even get there. You've got the court. Before we start thinking, I thought someone did. All right, let's put over here, and the reason I'm doing it is because it's important, but yet I don't want to uh, interject it on this side, but let's put over here the court. Meaning that open space that Brother Ralph referred to, where this large altar was, the burnt offering in front of the labor, where we've got the court on the courtyard, and then we've got the tabernacle itself, and we're going to put the tabernacle here. <laughs> All right, then when we get to the tabernacle, we find that it's divided, it's divided into two compartments, or two sections, what are they? Can everybody see this? I'm going to put the, the holy place. Is being 
we've got a principle that says, in effect, that even after Israel was called out, that God is teaching and instructing, now see Brother Ralph nodding his head, God is teaching and instructing Israel, you've been called out and you're separate and set apart, but in my dealing with you, it must all be done according to my laws and according to my commandments. You don't interject your own ideas, and you've got the tent, then you've got the tent of the Levites, you've got the tent of Moses and Aaron, then you've got the priest, you've got the high priest, you've got the tabernacle, and that's it, you've got the court over here. So in that order, in the way that we put them up here, what might be the lesson? I hope somebody comes up with a Jewish for all these things. What is the lesson? Someone that might not have been with the last year because some of this we have touched on. What is the lesson here? The approach to holiness. Yeah, perfect arrangement. The, uh, well, perfect arrangement, but like you said, it's, it's the approach to holiness. The approach to holiness. Now, with this idea in mind, do you suppose that, uh, that the camp of Israel became very conscious of how they would circulate around this, uh, this area here? Well, again, brother, let me just uh, briefly get another panel here and hold it up. Let's get a close-up of this. Now, this one we did have. Some of you are going to read this one. There's the tabernacle, and here's the courtyard that we spoke of. Now, it's interesting again, and notice the detail. The detail is just, it's, it's a, amazing how much detail is in it. It didn't say, God didn't say unto Moses, fix uh, the tabernacle, period. Fix the tabernacle, gather the best materials that you can, fix it, and then put a, a fence or a curtain on it. Didn't say that off. He told them to fix this curtain area there, but he told them to use fine, fine linen, and they told them also how high to make it. And that enclosure there, that fine linen curtain around that tabernacle, is seven and a half feet high. Now, why have it seven and a half feet high? Why not have it, say, three and a half feet or something like that, so anybody could walk around and look over and do it. Then it didn't see, doesn't Again, that God says to Israel, you just don't commonly and vulgarly look over anybody. In other words, the eyes of Israel could not just, you know, just look upon it. Now, this is high enough. This is over 15 feet higher. They could see part of the Mishkan, or that's the Hebrew word for tabernacle. They could see that. But they could not see what was going on in that courtyard, not unless they were there at the door of this thing. Israel could not have come there and see what was going on there. Now, what my business said, if I were living in the camp and you were living there, and we had nothing to do with the Levites, and we had nothing to do with the priesthood, what might this suggest to us? Would we feel that, that we were kind of excluded from something? Yeah. There are we would have. We'd say, look, uh, there's limitations put upon my communal building in the camp and what I can do there. So these individuals living in the camp, they couldn't go into that area infrequently. Only the priests worked in that area there. So again, God is saying separateness, and I will be sanctified in them that draw near unto me. So the principle is being kept inside of it. And Israel learning the principle, now if anybody had been so foolish as to uh, go contrary to those instructions, they would have been struck dead. We had one example with class one, where uh, the censors of strange fire. It was your class that did better, right? Here's uh, Nadab and Abijah. They heard these laws. They understood the instructions. 
They very definitely understood what was involved here, but their problem was that they were lusting after or they coveted a little more of the glory that Moses and Aaron had. So they said to themselves, and they said, look, uh, we too are going to start offering. Mind you, in sincerity, they said, look, we've got the center and we'll take the fire to them. But they didn't get the fire from the altar, but that's not the problem in itself. Not only did they not take the fire or the coals from that altar, not in the, uh, the courtyard there here, which is the altar of the altar, it was strange fire. And as Brother Ross suggested, they got it from somewhere other than the altar, and the result was that they died because of their disobedience. Do you suppose that that lesson was forcibly brought home to Israel when they saw these men die? In what class again was it? It gave us the instructions that uh, certain ones were able to get these, uh, these bodies. The uncle of Aaron. Yeah, the uncle of Aaron. Right. Now, any questions or comments? I hope some of you aren't going to sleep. Our young people tell you you will. <laughs> any questions or comments, then? How much time do we have here? Yeah, okay. Why, uh, okay. Why was this place to the east? I know it was because of obedience to God, not what you said. All right, this brother's asked, why does the tabernacle face the east? Right? <laughs> Because of the face east, so that man would not worship the sun to begin with. He turned his back on it. But the, the kings of the rising will come from the east. This is the number one of the truth that they were forbidden to think in terms of worshiping that heavenly body set out there in the heavens. But there's two things involved. Number one is and that Israel might not be tempted to worship that ball of energy out there. And also, and more importantly, that the Son of God, in His brightness and glory, comes from the east with feeling in His wings. I believe we'd have to be kind of different, but in other words, I, I consider it a reasonable big subject, but in God's language, we, He's really speaking in kindergarten language in a way, so we can grasp it. But all of these things tell us that. It's telling us something. Now, in this arrangement again of this, what did it say in effect to Israel? Again, this is an important part to Israel as well as to ourselves. With these restrictions, which are so obvious in the time, what did it tell? It told us that the approach was orderly and according to God's way and not their own way. Right. Orderly is and according to God's way and not their own, but it also told them something about themselves. It's really a paradox here. God says, you are a peculiar people. You are to draw near to me. You can enjoy the fellowship of deity, the God-man relationship. But everything about the tabernacle, everything involved in brother, told them and reminded them continually from day to day of their natural uncleanness and their sin condition. A constant reminder. Now, it just comes to my mind here, brother, and I think it's relevant, and I think you appreciate the point. It just popped into it. Can you imagine anyone breathing in the inner time of the soul and the inner goodness of man and appreciating what's involved here? How could you possibly approach God in, in the proper spirit if you really believe that you had an immortal soul in you 
and, and that man is innately good, and that he's not, uh, he's not separated from God in that sense, and that if you let him out, he'll pass him out as a word. Even the doctrines of Christianity teach that they do not understand the principles of man's natural uncleanness and his sin nature. And more importantly, brethren, the Christadelphians are unique in this way. The Christadelphians are unique in this way. They don't say this boastfully. When we start examining this subject in the light of Christ, as well as the body of Christ, he's the only one that meets the conditions. And even Christ himself, with the sin nature, and as Brother Ralph knows very well, and he's going to bring out, I'm sure, his class, even Christ being prefigured in this, he had to meet those conditions just like Aaron had to meet them. You suppose Aaron could have gone in any time he wanted to? How many times did Aaron go into the most holy place? In one of the years. Well, there were any restrictions when he went in there at the time. He was told what to do. And of course, Aaron, being a type of Christ, we can see, therefore, that God is saying, in effect, that man by nature is unclean, he's separate from God through his sin nature, and there will not be. There will not be God all and in all until man has changed not only his character, but he will have necessity have to have a change in his very nature before he can have a beat as one with God. Even when Aaron went in, he wasn't sure that his sacrifice would be acceptable. Because more bells on his guns, and when they were to stop ringing, well, that meant the uh, sacrifice was not acceptable. He could die. He could have died in the most other place. I believe it's in fact that I heard someone, I'm going to give to you for what it's worth. I remember I heard this, and it's been quite a number of years ago, and it made quite an impression on the floor. I ever thought I'd get this involved in this subject. But I remember some brother, either I heard it at a school or I read it from two brother writers or someone, but I remember they gave this description, and it made an impression on my mind. They said that when Aaron went into the most holy place, and there was the separating veil, that when he went in, and the said these bells were at the bottom of his priestly garments. But they said that there was a, a card. I don't want to say what. Some of you are not. You must have done. But they said that there was a card around him, and that if those bells had ceased to jingle as... Uh, Aaron was uh, going through his ministry there in the most holy. It would be indicative that he must have been struck there because he did not do it according to God's specifications here and his laws. And this was the only thing, since no one would have been permitted to go beyond the field into the most holy of God's presence. Consequently, the only way that Aaron's sons could have gotten their father out of there was that car would have been trading out